number of years ago, I visited Nancy Barnes in the hospital. She was in her 90s already. Nancy lived alone, only a few streets away from me, and I sometimes saw her out on a morning walk. She always wore a skirt when she walked. Sometimes I would go with our children's ministry at Christmas time to sing carols at the homes of our elderly members, those who were shut in and could no longer come to church, and I absolutely loved seeing the smile on Nancy's face as she stood in the doorway of her home and the children sang. On this particular day, down at St. Luke's Hospital, Nancy was sick but still able to sit up in bed and visit. She told me the story of how she was baptized by our founding pastor, George Hamilton Combs, in the basement of the church before the sanctuary was ever built. And then, with a twinkle in her eye, she recounted how when she was just a little girl, the Country Club Christian Church sent a young woman from Missouri named Margaret Lawrence off to China as a missionary. And when Margaret would come home to visit in Missouri, she would meet with the children of the church and she would teach them Christian songs in the language of the mission field, Mandarin. And then Nancy, in her hospital bed, began to sing one of those songs in Mandarin, word for word. At that moment, I knew. I knew. I knew that some extraordinary spirit had been alive in this church for a very long time. There was something that had stretched from those very early days of the church in the 1920s until today, but it didn't really have a name for what that was. Over the past several months, I've had a lot of fun reading and rereading drafts of the full church history of our congregation. Dr. Lena Place, retired history professor and church elder, has spent years writing our history, and it will be released in book form later this year. But as I read those drafts, I keep asking myself, what spirit has been at work among us? One chapter that I find quite gripping is how we faced World War II as a church. We were then less than 20 years old, and the war broke out. And at that time, we still owed money on our building. With gas and food and fuel all rationed, we faced big challenges. 396 of our young men and women served in the war effort, and 10 of them never came home. For many weeks, there was talk of a coming D-Day, an invasion of Europe by the Allied troops, and the church announced in worship and in the newsletter that when the moment came that the invasion was underway, even if it came in the middle of the night, that the doors of the sanctuary would be immediately open so that members and neighbors and friends and loved ones could gather to pray for our service members in harm's way. The notice read, you are therefore invited to come directly to the church upon receipt of this news. And so in the early hours of Tuesday, June 6, 1944, the doors of the sanctuary were opened. What do you 
call that? What name would you give to that particular holy moment? Or does it even have a name? When the war finally ended, the church appointed a committee specifically aimed at welcoming back those who had endured the horrific experiences of war. It was called the Returning Service Personnel Committee. They drafted a long document that noted all the ways that the church could help the returning service personnel, not just in finding jobs, but also in paying attention to the psychological and emotional needs of those young men and women who had experienced the unthinkable. You may recall that back then, no one was really expected to talk about the emotions of the war. You were to hold it all in and just move on with a new life. But the church knew that that's not the way the spirit works. A year after the war ended, the church board received a letter criticizing the behavior of the young people's class, those people in the church between the ages of 18 and 28. Someone complained that they had alcohol at their parties. Whew, what a scandal. The older gentleman who was the teacher of that class wrote a lengthy letter to the board. He defended the young people. He said almost 100% of them fought the war on the battlefront. They had their youth interrupted by an economic depression and a war and a world of social unrest. And he concluded his letter of support by saying, with sympathetic understanding, these young people can be led to a consciousness of the abiding presence of God working in the hearts of men. What do you call that? Does it have a name? What spirit was alive in those challenging days of the early congregation forming at 61st and Ward Parkway as the world recovered from a war? 25 years ago, I participated in a three-week book discussion during Lent. A dozen women gathered in a home to share lunch and reflect on a book of disciples' feminist theology called Setting the Table. Around our lunch table, something surprising rose up, and we ended up meeting two times a month for more than 20 years. A few years into that group, one member, Carol, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Now, Carol didn't want anyone to know of her health struggle. She didn't want to be known as that lady with cancer. But after the doctor tried surgery and other treatments, Carol was told that she would need a bone marrow transplant. And so her secret became known. She complained to us at one of the group meetings that after the transplant, she would have to come home to a completely clean and sterile home, including, she said, brand new bath towels. And this frustrated her because she said she and George still had the same ragged towels in their bathroom that they got for their wedding more than 20, 35 years prior. At our next group meeting, every woman brought a gift. It was a brand new towel. And now she had two weeks of fresh new towels. And as she opened towel after towel after towel, she wept 
We all wept. What do you call that? In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes to a church that was just getting started. It's not a church in the 20th century in the United States, but one of the very first churches formed in Ephesus after Jesus no longer walked among the disciples on this earth. Paul describes to this infant church what is the purpose of a church, what is the essence of a church, what a church is really called to be about. You could say that Paul defines that one thing as unity. He spills a lot of ink on our oneness, one faith, one baptism, one God, one spirit. We're called to be a community, to be at peace with each other. Surely the world would be better if the church embodied the unity and the harmony that Paul described as a high calling for the church. But it means sacrificing a little bit of our individuality and becoming a bit more humble than most of us feel like being in order to reveal the unity and oneness of God. Or maybe... Maybe the one thing in Paul's premier vision of church is for every single member to share his or her gifts. Paul says that if the church will thrive, it will be because some are preachers, some are teachers, some are prophets, for we have a variety of gifts among us. Some are the hand, some are the foot, some are the neck. We are all needed to work together for God's purposes on this earth. Each of us participates in God's presence here on the earth by contributing from our own gifts. You you take up the offering and serve dinner to the poor. I'll serve homebound communion. You go and teach Sunday school and I'll weed the garden and, and I'll sing in the choir. Or you could claim that Paul really points to love as the key aspect of church life. Surely love is the one thing, you could argue, because Paul writes that we're to bear with one another in love, that we are to speak the truth in love. When we love, we are gentle and patient with each other. We don't get sidetracked with every different philosophy that comes along. Instead, we practice loving each other in the church. We practice loving our enemies. We love those who love us, and we love those who don't love us back. We love those who look just like us, and we love those who don't. We don't ever quite get there. But we're always maturing in this regard in Paul's mind within the church. But Paul says the whole point is really to keep building up in love, building up the church in love, building up the human person in love. Maybe that's the one thing. A hundred years ago, on January 2nd, 1921, 60 or so men and women gathered in an upper room above the shops over in Brookside to organize a new church. The wooden folding chairs squeaked on the waxed wooden dance floor and sometimes those chairs collapsed in on the little kids. Someone suggested that they should ask the landlord to put down a canvas floor instead, but that would cost a lot of money, maybe a hundred or even three hundred dollars. 
and it was too hot up there and too stuffy, and they complained that they would need some ceiling fans or some kind of fan to circulate the air a bit with all those people up there. After the first sermon, the preacher passed out a little questionnaire asking what gifts and experiences each of them had that they could use to help the church get started. The survey also asked them to write down the names of those people they knew in this new subdivision out on the edge of a cornfield, people who might be invited to join this new church. Door knocking would soon commence by both the preacher and the founding members. The founding pastor, Dr. Combs, said, Preacher feet are of far more importance than pulpit wings. Eloquent perorations may swirl for a while, but echoes of knocks on the door will linger far longer, said Combs. Could they have possibly known then what they were really doing? Did they foresee on January 2nd, 1921, that the open doors of the Gothic church would provide solace and hope to a grieving nation during the war? Did they imagine how Kansas City would roil during the civil rights movement in the 1960s and the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020? That the church would be called upon to speak of unity and wholeness and the ways that we are all brothers and sisters of the one parent God. Did they know, did they know that they would deploy missionaries to save lives in China and Israel and Haiti and Nicaragua and India? Did they imagine, did they even begin to fathom that one day another global pandemic would rock the whole world and we would stream our worship services around the city and the nation and the world and that we would be able to pray and sing via this weird thing called Zoom? Did they know that they were forming not a social club or an excellent social service agency, or even a civic institution for doing good deeds. These folks, 60 or so of them, laid a foundation that opened the doorway for God's spirit to come to life in a world that would desperately need the presence of the living God. And so they each wrote down on a card something about what gifts they had that would enable the church to lead a life worthy of God's call. It was more than unity and community. It was more than offering the gifts of their lives, their time, their talent, their treasure to build up one another. It was even more than love. Gentle love and kindness, it, it goes a long way. What they did is what Paul said we were called to do above all else. It is such an odd and mysterious term, and yet it is the one thing that really matters. They became the body of Christ joined and knit together by every ligament, they became the body of Christ here on earth.
When I heard Nancy singing Jesus Loves Me in Mandarin, I heard the body of Christ. When the doors of the sanctuary opened for spontaneous prayer at our moment of deep fear on D-Day, people gathered to be the body of Christ, broken yet hopeful. When friends wrapped brand new towels around the sick body of a friend, the body of Christ was here on earth. What do you think? What do you think they will say about us a hundred years from now when they look back? How will they describe that spirit that was alive in us?